0: everybody and welcome back to new books in history. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Nell Irvin Painter on the show and we'll be talking about her book The History of White People. I, your host, am white, I suppose, and I never really understood how I got that way. However, after reading Nell's book, I have a fuller understanding of how I came to be classified as white, or even more oddly, Caucasian. And it's a really interesting story. It goes through Germany in the 18th century and then into Europe in the 19th century, and we meet some familiar figures of American literary history again in the 19th century. And then we find some people who founded racial science and introduced our modern lexicon of races as colors to the American populace at large. And then we proceed through a number of expansions of whiteness, one economic and another built on immigration or including of immigrants, particularly Irish people. And then a third, which involves the building of suburbs. And then a fourth, which is ongoing today as whiteness is fading. So whether you're white or not, or however you consider yourself, I think that you'll find this book and the interview extraordinarily interesting. And so without further ado, here it is. Hi, Nell.
1: Hello, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? Very good.
0: I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Today we have Nell Irvin Painter on the show, and we'll be discussing her book, The History of White People. I found the book uh, both very enlightening and um, very entertaining. As a white person myself, I had no idea uh, that my very distant um, forebears didn't consider themselves white. I kind of had an inkling of this, but um, I didn't know. I should also say that uh, Nell wrote uh, uh, an earlier book, about a place called Nicodemus, Kansas, which I used to visit as a uh, a young person growing up in Kansas. Um, it's called the Exodusters, isn't it? Is that right, now? Exodusters, yeah, Exo-dusters. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So anyway, you go, go out and buy that book. I think no books go out of print anymore, but I'm certainly after I discovered that she wrote it. I'm certainly going to go out and get it and read it because, um, you know, as I say, it was uh, it was really eye opening for me growing up, as I say, in the Midwest to see that this. Um, This this community where I I would not have expected it. But anyway, today we're going to be talking about the history of white people. And Nell, why don't we ask you to begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself.
1: Okay. Uh, I am from Oakland, California. Um, I just came back from Oakland, California, where my 92-year-old father still lives. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I am very much a Californian uh, in the sense that uh, Californians are kind of irreverent. And if you found the history of white people funny, I think that's the Californians speaking <laughs> to Um, I did my first degree at the University of California, Berkeley, the only place I ever wanted to go to college. I uh, kind of grew up on that campus. My father was chief technician of chemistry for many, many years. Really? Ago. Wow. And uh, then we went to um, Ghana uh, to make the African Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a master's degree at UCLA in African history, and I did a PhD at Harvard in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, how's that? Or do you want more? No, of- that's terrific. Oh. That's absolutely, that's <laughs> absolutely
0: terrific. Can I, this is a little bit tangential, but since I'm so, so interested um, in a kind of very self serving way in this particular book, how did you happen upon uh, Nicodemus, Kansas?
1: Um, Well, the story, Exodusters starts in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's right after Reconstruction. And for a really good reason, um, many black southerners feared they were to be re-enslaved. So uh, they decided to leave. And the place they wanted to go to was the place that was famous for being uh, free Kansas. Because remember, before the Civil War, there was... uh, a uh, big fight over Kansas yeah. with John Brown was: mm-hmm. Kansas going to be a free state or a slave state? And Kansas did not become a state until it could become a free state. Mm-hmm. So Kansas was known as Free Kansas, and that's the place where people went. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them uh, they went up the river, up the mm-hmm. Mississippi River, uh, into um, Missouri and the Missouri River. Um, Some of them stayed in St. Louis, some of them stayed in uh, Kansas City, some of them went to Topeka, and some of them ventured west um, to farm, and they managed that. The story actually merges with the larger story of Western migration generally in the sense that um, in the uh, 1880s, it was a good decade for farming in the West, but the weather turned and the economy soured. And so lots of towns in the West, Nicodemus included, uh, pretty much collapsed by the end of the century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, what you would have experienced was kind of a remnant of many Western towns, Nicodemus included. But because of Nicodemus's um, uh, history, it did retain that resonance of freedom and so when i visited there the biggest building i don't know if you could still call it a town but the biggest building uh, was the post office uh-huh. that dated back to the wpa
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah no i remember going there very well and i have a big smile on my face because it's really taken me back it's been 40 years since i've been there and mm-hmm. uh but it was a really eye-opening experience for me. Mm -hmm. Because I was trying to... Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: What we discover about American history is that there are always more different kinds of people there, there being wherever, than we, in our stereotypical ways of thinking, expect. So you would have found uh, Indians in the East in the 19th century, Uh, Mm -hmm. probably in the early 20th century. Well, you do now, for instance. I commute up up and down um, Interstate 95, and I pass uh, Indian reservations in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, There were African Americans throughout the United States. I don't think there was any state uh, at the time of the exodus that didn't have some black people in it. Um, There were Asian people uh, in the West. There were... Um, in the early 20th century, there were Mexicans in, in
0: uh, uh, Chicago, mm-hmm. and you know, so
1: on and on. We shouldn't expect not to
0: find people. Yeah, no, that's that's exa- I think that's a, that's exactly that's exactly right. And one of the things I'm uh, I always remark on. My wife and I take our kids around these. Uh, we go on these jaunts every uh, weekend around Iowa to kind of visit little towns because I'm kind of a fan of little towns, and mm-hmm. Iowa's a great place for them. There's yeah. a Chinese restaurant in every little town in Iowa. And it may well be run by people
1: from Vietnam. Yeah, it's
0: right. Yeah, Uh every little town has a Chinese restaurant now. So anyway, well, that's a nice segue into uh, the way that um, uh, some of us, some people, thought about America, and that is, it's kind of a white Anglo-Saxon place. And uh, your book, The History of White People, kind of tells the story of how some people uh, started to think of it that way. How did you come to write this book? Why did you decide to write it?
1: I I started with a question. Uh, This is far from my first book or second book or third book or four it's my seventh book. So, you know, when you do a lot of books you you can kind of do what you want. Yeah. So uh I I started by thinking this is in the tail end of the twentieth century, uh during the uh wars in the Caucasus, the Chechnya. So there's you know, there's all this bombing going on and fighting between the Russians and the Chechens well, that's, that's the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, why are white people <laughs> called Chechens? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? And um, that led me to Germany. And actually, my husband and I were in, I started this book in Germany in 2001. I've been mm-hmm. thinking about it before that. And I taught a class um, a couple of times or three times, actually, in Princeton so uh, it started turning over before I actually started this serious, serious research. Mm-hmm. Um, but it started with the German question, or what, what turned out to be the German question, uh, because the word Caucasian, as applied to white people, is a German invention mm-hmm. from Göttingen, Germany, actually in a book published on the 11th of April, 1795, in Göttingen, Germany.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Well, that's a good, but yeah, you know, it's always good to start a book with a question, mm-hmm. and that is curious, and eventually in the interview, we're going to tell people why, but we're not going to tell them now, so they, <laughs> we'll keep them in suspense for the moment, so yeah. um, really, I'd like to kind of begin with the beginning, because as you do, and, and, and deservedly so, uh, we know that many, um, let's call them, I guess, uh, uh, white intellectuals of the 18th and 19th century uh, thought about the Greeks, as their yeah. as their ancestors, well, and that
1: also comes from Germany.
0: Yes, yes. So, so I just wanted to know. Um, uh, again, starting with the beginning, did the Greeks or, or think in terms of, uh, um, I guess, race as color or race as phenotypic trait?
1: Well, they didn't think of race. Race is an invention mm-hmm. uh, of the Enlightenment of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So, this idea that there's something inside people that is permanent. And immutable um, and you can characterize it and interestingly enough, often in terms that have to do with beauty and ugliness,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that there's something permanent in people, and you can uh, you can sort of taxonomize them, you can mm-hmm. ca- classify them uh, according to various traits that 's an eighteenth century idea mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um The Greek savants, uh, like Herodotus, uh, were much more interested in how people lived and where they lived and the interrelationship between territory and climate and body and habit. Mm -hmm. So people who lived in boggy places had damp bellies and the women might have difficulty conceiving. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. Since I wrote... um, A colleague in Texas um, pointed out that um, Greek society, ancient Greek society, did have some ideas about skin color. And uh, since the uh, the elite men exercised and exercised in the nude outdoors, a nice bronze color was an (laughs) ideal. And a way to stigmatize men from other places who did, did not live in this superior way was to talk about them as white, meaning that they did not go outside and mm-hmm. exercise in the sunlight. Right. So being white for a man was a sign of unmanliness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, for women, it's different because uh, if you're already elite, you want to keep your women out of the fields. So, women get darker in the fields, so uh, whiteness is good for women as a sign of um, leisure class status, Mm -hmm. being able to stay inside, but not for men. Mm
2: -hmm. At any
1: rate, uh, the idea of race and the idea of whiteness as beauty comes much later Mm -hmm. than the ancient Greeks.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's just stay with the Greeks for a moment. They, of course, kept slaves. I think most everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. But they did didn't think of slaves in racial terms. Again, I'm kind of trying to put this in the context of the <laughs> American mentality where these things are associated. Maybe you could talk yeah. a little bit about that.
1: Mm-hmm. They did not. Um there was a, a highly organized slave trade in ancient Greece, Greece, and the people uh, in question largely came from uh, Thrace, which is uh, north of uh, what we now think of as Greece, Bulgaria, and around the Mere. And that is to say, the whole Black Sea area. This was a region that was not ruled by strong kings. And the people were poor. So um, the condition for being enslaved is being poor and vulnerable. And the people who slave, or who do enslave, or who participate in slave trading, don't care what color you are or uh, where you come from, as long as you're cheap and available.
2: <laughs> so
1: the historical slave trade into the developed Western world, that is to say, first, ancient Greece as, um, as a, a wealthy uh, area, and then ancient Rome, and then after a very long time, uh, during the Dark Ages, into the West, those are the poor, vulnerable people. And the source is the area around the Black Sea, mm-hmm. which finally gave us the word slave from the word Slav. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, and that will be an association that, um, that is the association between the kind of Dnieper River Valley and that uh, northern littoral of the Black Sea. That association between mm-hmm. it and slavery will last a thousand years. Yeah. Um, it lasts into the period that I study, which is the 17th century. Yeah. Um so yeah, that 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 was it, where it they
1: actually were. went on uh until the Ottoman Turks outlawed it in the late nineteenth and uh-huh, early twentieth yeah, centuries. Yeah. And the turning point really is um when the Ottomans took over the Eastern Mediterranean, which had been the area of uh sugar culture. Mm-hmm. So if, if we want to look at the genesis of our association of Africa with slavery We need to look at sugar and Brazil and the Caribbean and the United States, Mm -hmm. um, cotton, that is to say plantation agriculture in the new world. Mm -hmm. So the relationship between slavery and Africa turns on new world plantation Mm -hmm.
0: agriculture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Exactly. So let's move on past the Greeks uh, and their slave trade. By the way, most people don't know that there were Greek colonies in the northern – the northern coast of the Black Sea. And they still retain some of their names. If you look at the Russian names, they're actually Greek.
1: They're actually Greek. Yeah, yeah. that's
0: right. So, and Because there were slave traders up there. And they also, mm-hmm. well, they did a lot of other things as well. But there were slave traders. And it's interesting because the well, what we call the Vikings were the people that would come through. And they would capture these slaves. And they would sell them to the Greeks or the Byzantines at the time. Yeah, well, and
1: the Vikings are latter-day comers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Greeks had, uh, had organized yeah. it right. long yeah. before.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. So let's, let's move on to the Romans. And I want to talk about one Roman in particular. Uh, and, th- and that is Tacitus. I think most people read Tacitus in college still. I don't know. Do they? But uh, he had uh, it on. I don't, I don't think people read anymore. I don't I read <laughs> Tacitus in college. Uh, but, so he had it on for the Germans. He thought of the Germans were uh, kind of wonderful. Uh, did, what, what kind of uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, I don't know what to say, typological or, or classificatory consciousness did the Romans have? And what was it with Tacitus and the Germans?
1: Well, Tacitus is one thing. And we read backwards. Tacitus is one of a handful of uh, Roman Romans who wrote about the Netherlands. That is to I'm sorry, Netherland means lower area. So I don't mean that. I mean the far off reaches. Mm -hmm. Um, The best known actually is Julius Caesar, Mm -hmm. who uh, had a lot more standing and a lot more experience um, in what is now Gaul and the conquest and the northwestern reaches of the Roman Empire. But Tacitus became important, and here I have to go back to the Germans, um, with German nationalism. A German nationalist in the 18th and 19th century, particularly the 19th century, wanted to glorify themselves. They weren't the, the home of civilization. They weren't Greece. They weren't Rome. They weren't even France. So they had to find something that was handsome and wonderful and good, and they found a a version of manliness, which appears in Tacitus. So they go back to Tacitus, who talks about how rough and tough and manly um, these (laughs) barbarians were. And that touches a strain that I found running through uh, Western writing around masculinity. Mm -hmm. And that is um, a theme of suspicion of civilization. Civilization makes men soft, Mm -hmm. and barbarism keeps them hard. Mm -hmm. So Tacitus um, is writing in that vein to critique his fellow Romans who have gotten soft. Mm -hmm. You know, look up there in the far reaches, and you find these really manly men,
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Germans. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And then, of course, it's revived by classical scholarship, and the Germans are great at that. Uh, so, which is, I don't know, but maybe it somehow infiltrated our own educational system. Actually, in the early 19th, late 19th century, when Johns Hopkins was founding the first graduate schools, they, they called it the German system. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you'd have to, you know, all Gaul is divided into three parts and that kind of thing. Um, so let's actually move on a little bit past the, uh, the Romans and Tacitus, which provide ample material for these Germans when they're inventing whiteness, too. You have a couple of really interesting chapters on something that I think is overlooked especially in America, because of our um, perhaps apt focus on African slavery, and that is white slavery.
1: Yeah, that was um, quite a learning experience for me. I did not know I was going to write that. I think it's really two chapters chapters, that that ends up. Um, The first on just the historical uh, background of slavery before the – European discovery of the New World. And that is the, the slave trade that we've been discussing from the Black Sea area. And the second is the whole elaboration of the idea of beauty uh, as a racial trait. Now this is, comes um, it flowers during the Romantic era with seeds in the Enlightenment. And the idea is that um, one, racial group or variety, people have different ways of, of using words to to taxonomize, mm-hmm. um, that it's not just head shape or height or pigmentation. It's also beauty
2: mm-hmm.
1: that the better people, the smarter people, the superior people are beautiful or beautiful-er than the other people. Mm-hmm. And for... Um, Göttingen for uh, Jan Friedrich Blumenbach, who started this with the Caucasians, he just goes into hands of glorifying be- of <laughs> the beauty of the figure that, that the determined him to call uh, white people Caucasians, and that is a skull.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it's not that attractive, really, if you see uh, it. It's, it is. Actually,
1: it is a very beautiful skull. And the, the image is entitled Beautiful Skull. Yeah. Beautiful, my beautiful skull. The skull is beautiful because it is intact.
2: Uh-huh.
1: The teeth are intact. The skull isn't, you know, it's not beaten up or mashed or broken or anything like that. So it's the skull of a young person. And I know from the letter um, that came with this skull that it was of a sex slave. Mm -hmm. That is to say, someone who had been caught up in this practice of time immemorial, of Mm -hmm. warlords and uh, warriors, of taking captives Mm -hmm. and using them. So she died of a venereal disease Mm -hmm. at a very young age. So at any rate, this is all to say that the one of the roots of classification goes into this slave trade Mm -hmm. and into beauty and into the figure emerging in the 19th century in French academic painting as the Odalisque, Mm
0: -hmm. the slave girl. Yeah, the slave girl. So uh, before we go to the Odalisque, let's talk a little bit about um, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, who's Mm -hmm. an interesting character. And it is uh, is he who uh, makes um, people who look like me not Kansans, but Caucasians. So maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about him.
1: Blumenbach is actually fascinating.
0: I could have written a whole yeah, book about No, you Blumenbach. really could. He, yeah,
1: um, Blumenbach was uh, a medical doctor, a Ph.D. in Germany, uh, wrote the, the first edition of his thesis on the varieties of mankind in uh, 1775, revised it in the 80s and then Uh, In the third edition, 1795, attaches the word Caucasian to his classification of the varieties of mankind. Blumenbach himself uh, lived at a time of agitation over the Atlantic slave trade, and he was aware of the, the growing identification between Africans and slavery. He also had a colleague named Christoph Minas who uh, was also interested in the classification of mankind. Uh, miners had a much simpler classification than Blumenbach. Blumenbach said there are five varieties. Miners said there are two, the ugly and the beautiful. (laughs) And uh, this is one characteristic of racial classification. There was never an agreement on the number of races or varieties, and there was never, is never, an agreement on how you tell. What do you measure? So for some people, it was um, the head shape. For some people, it was the volume of the brain. Uh, For some people, it was height. Um, One of the reigning experts of the turn of the 20th century, uh, a man named John Beto, a British uh, taxonomist, was very big on pigment and was convinced that the Irish were darker than the English, mm-hmm. and classified his cla- his classic book is the races of Britain, mm-hmm. the race as plural yeah. of Britain, right. and he has uh, a map with the index of negrescence, that is to say, yeah, the say, index yeah. of yeah. darkness yeah. of the British population.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What were? Let me ask this because Blumenbach is hardly alone in attempting this classification of peoples. It, it has, mm-hmm. it's yes. gone on. I, I studied it a little bit in, in, in the first book that I wrote uh, about kind of Renaissance um, ethnography. What mm-hmm. were they trying to get at here? What what, what questions were they trying to answer? Because some of these uh, people, you know, I don't want to, I I don't want to give the listeners the impression that some of them weren't kind of serious, because uh, mm. they were. And they what, were, what were very the, serious. Yeah, what were they trying to do?
1: In a word, science. Yeah. They were trying to do science, which meant measuring things and classifying things. Yeah. So the great forerunner is Linnaeus. Uh, the sort of uh, definitive version of his book is 1758. Mm-hmm. So um, for Linnaeus, there were four races. Uh, and I don't think he called them races either. People writing in Latin, so it's varieties or types or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Linnaeus classified everything, everything Mm -hmm. in the world. And people were just one tiny little corner. So um, classification is what was going on in the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And classifying people was one part of that larger undertaking.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this eventually becomes anthropology. We'll come to that in (laughs) a a second. But um, I want to talk a little bit about... uh, one of the, uh, what I thought was really a quite revealing um, chapter, and it was one that uh, I think I will mention to all of my students um, hereafter, and that is about <clears throat> how these notions of racial classification, and particularly um, Anglo-Saxon superiority, seep into the American context and eventually show up in some odd places, like the writings of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson.
1: Yeah. Um this is something else I never expected when I started.
0: Me neither.
1: I <laughs> so, never yeah. planned to write about Emerson. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, but Emerson turns out to be a key figure uh, for two, well, for many reasons, but the most important is his towering status in 19th century, oh no, not just 19th century, his towering status in American letters. Mm-hmm. So Emerson is a figure of enormous power intellectually. And the second is what you put your finger on is Emerson's point, um, his situation in the transit of ideas about the classification of humankind from Germany into the United States and into the sort of American psyche of who we are. And uh, that goes very much from Germany and people like Blumenbach through another key figure whom I never expected to write about. And that's Carlisle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Carlyle and Emerson were very big friends uh, throughout their lives. They were mostly friends uh, as an epistolary uh, friendship. But they did meet and they did like each other very much. So Carlyle taught Emerson about Germans and about German ideas. And also, Emerson's aunt, uh, Mary Moody Emerson, also taught Emerson uh, about German ideas. And the key figure there is uh, Madame Germaine de Stael, mm-hmm. whom I also didn't yeah. know I was going to be writing about. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's right. So, how did, let me ask you a quick question. I kind of forgot to ask it. How was it that uh, Anglo Saxons uh, came to be identified with? Um, white people, especially in America. Why Anglo Saxons? Um, Why not Utes or something? I don't know. What is it? Slavs um, or it, somebody. Yeah. Oh,
1: okay, because Slavs are poor people. Yeah. So um, the genealogy of superior white races mm-hmm. goes from uh, Teutonic to Saxon to Anglo Saxon to Nordic. Mm-hmm. So the first one, since all this comes out of Germany, Germans are the best and smartest and most beautiful people. Mm -hmm. Um, But there also were a lot of poor Germans in the United States. And uh, in Emerson's America, the elite were not Germans themselves. And Mm -hmm. Emerson had a rather – Emerson was not that crazy about actual Germans. I mean, he did love one actual German, and that was Goethe. Mm-hmm. And he actually named the family cat Goethe.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm going to mention that at cocktail but, parties. Trust me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> one good
1: line. Yeah. Um, but he he wasn't inter- He never went to Germany. He yeah. wasn't interested in actual Germans. Um, the. Here's a man writing in the middle of the 19th century, which is the the, the apogee of British power, of English power. So uh, his route into white superiority, and when I say white superiority, I mean superiority among the white races, Mm -hmm. plural, is the English side, Anglo. Mm -hmm. So Emerson put together the Teutonic with the English and got first Saxons and Anglo-Saxons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the idea of Anglo-Saxons that doesn't make any sense except outside the English-speaking world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a it's a concept that flourished in in Great Britain and in the United States.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Where the Saxony of Saxons is remained kind of a mystery.
2: Yeah.
1: Um There is a Lower Saxony, (laughs) Niedersachsen, which is literally lower in the sense of closer to the Low Countries, Um, and Hanover is the the capital of that Lower Saxony. So that there is a relationship between Niedersachsen and um, the English uh, aristocracy, but the Saxony that was in the news uh, during Emerson's time. Way over in the east, and it's around Dresden mm-hmm. and Leipzig. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are, that's where the real, and, and Weimar, which was where Goethe was. Mm-hmm. So the real Saxony of Goethe's time, of uh, Emerson's time, it, is the Saxony of the east. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the place that kind of looms large in this made up geography of Anglo Saxons. It's actually in Denmark. It's Julen, mm-hmm. which is southern yeah. Denmark. Yeah. So it's 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 crazy. It's a cockamamie yeah. scheme.
0: Yeah, yeah. But uh, so th- this is all kind of a reflex of um, of nationalism and romanticism. Then can we yeah. boil it down to that? Yeah. So the, uh,
1: I would never boil things. Okay. All right. I, I did that. You did it. I'm
0: sorry. I, I'm a big boiler. I like yeah. know, boil the ocean. That's what my boss used to say. So the uh, um, so it's it's about at this point that Americans become concerned, and I think English people as well. I'm thinking particularly of um, uh, uh, Darwin's nephew, whose name now escapes me. Um, uh, uh, you know just who I'm talking about, but it'll come to me in a second. But anyway, about about uh, race mixing. And they're worried about the dilution of the Anglo-Saxon race, as they understand it. Yes. Uh-huh. And yes,
1: and and for people who were really worried about the Saxons, the great threat was the Irish, uh-huh. who belonged, to, who were supposed to belong to a different race. They were supposed to belong to the Celtic race, an inferior ape-like race. The Irish were poor, vulnerable people, and the Irish in the nineteenth century were afflicted. Well, they were afflicted by politics, political economy, um, which produced the potato famine Mm. and the widespread immigration with an E, that is, leaving home. And so for Emerson, um, and in my book I include uh, cartoons from the mid-19th century showing the Irish as the poor whites uh, with all the bad habits of poor people so um, for mid nineteenth century American politics, um, the Irish are a problem, and they are a racial problem
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah no and there, and there are a number of uh well we'll come to that in a second i want to um one of the the interesting moments in the development of whiteness and i guess uh, race theory in general is the attempt to find some objective measure yeah. of a person 's um mm, uh, identification with one of these classifications, and that well, it's and really I think,
1: a, a, a search for a group's worth
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i 'm thinking particularly of the uh, science and I would suppose art of craniometry yeah yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that that 's skull measuring yeah yeah,
1: yeah it 's skull measuring uh, craniometry took a lot of forms because there there was never any one thing you could measure that would prove any one thing. The great father of American craniometry was a man named Samuel Morton, who lived in uh, Philadelphia and taught at the most prestigious American medical school, which was the University of Pennsylvania. It, in the United States, uh, in the middle of the 19th century, obviously slavery was a big issue. And slavery is identified with people from, of African descent. So craniometry in the United States focused on measuring African skulls as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in Britain and in Europe, the concern was for white people, uh, or people we call white. And so the craniometry uh, in Europe is the measuring of white people. So um, Morton trained in Philadelphia and also in Edinburgh. And Edinburgh was the leading medical school period um, measured all kinds of, of skulls uh, measured American Indian skulls to prove that race really did exist and you could measure it and also did a book on Egyptian skulls to prove that the most lofty segments of the Egyptian population were just like American white people. Mm-hmm and the lower orders were just like Jews. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, Morton Morton did stigmatize what he saw as the Jewish skulls in ancient Egypt. But the big wave of anti-Semitism in the United States didn't get going until the big wave of immigrants who were Jewish. And so... Uh, American anti-Semitism crashed in the twentieth century, mm-hmm. not the
0: nineteenth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I should I should put in a quick plug for uh, Anne Fabian's book, *The Skull Collectors*. Uh, yes. We ha- we had her on the show two weeks ago, terrific. Which is why Morton was kind of fresh in my mind. He had yes. the largest collection of skulls, and yes. I learned interestingly enough that if you contact the people, I think it's at, at PEN. They'll take you yeah. into the basement or vault and they'll show yes. you the skulls. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd like to do yeah. that. Yeah, Anne
1: has been working in that book for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we talked back and forth um, as, uh, as I was writing. But I finished my book essentially in 2006, uh-huh. uh, in 2008, I'm sorry. And so I was not able to take account of her most recent book. But... Um, Morton is a is a crucial figure yeah, for yeah, the absolutely. American scene.
0: Right. So you mentioned the relation between waves of immigration and, I guess, I would call it um, waves of anxiety among these uh, Anglo-Saxonists. I don't know what to, what to call them. Um,
1: well, I, I would I would actually generalize. Waves of immigration in uh, leads to waves of racialization. Yeah. Uh, during the centuries when race was the key way of talking about human difference.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the thing I'm driving at is, is that by the early 20th century, it's beginning to get a certain amount of, it's beginning to get teeth, in the sense that uh, there's legislative action taken right. to to uh, stem the supposed um, dilution. Really alien of, race. Yeah, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about the relationship between that racial science, you know, um, the cephalic index and all, mm-hmm. and the uh, legislation that was put into place to limit certain yeah. kinds of migrants.
1: I would say that the teething began with Borton. Uh So I would push the the genesis of this kind of thinking um, in the United States back into the middle of the 19th mm-hmm. century. So um, because that's when the first great wave of impoverished immigrants comes, mm-hmm. the Irish. And um, by the late 19th century, when large numbers of immigrants were coming, or starting to come from southern and eastern Europe, that's when um, the move to cut off immigration really starts picking up steam, or to keep with your metaphor um, of growing its, uh, shedding its baby teeth mm-hmm. and getting its adult teeth.
2: Mm hmm. Mm
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, But the issue was complicated uh, in economic and political terms because those very people were feeding the American economy. They were supplying uh, a cheap and manipulable workforce for uh, people who were uh, influential in American politics as well as the American economy. So uh, in the 19th century, calls for cutting off immigration kept getting stymied by the forces of people who were representing employers. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: By the early 20th century, um, immigrant groups uh, and immigrants' children started having their say politically, and they um, were able to hold off this kind of legislation, which they saw as racist. Their great turning point is the 20s, uh, after the First World War, which inspired a panic in the United States, a sort of psychological panic over um, race segregation. And again, when they say race segregation, they mean different races of white people, of Europeans, and Bolshevism. So those two together led to the two steps in immigration restriction. In 1921, and then definitively in 1924. So that's
0: kind of the end of the story, not the beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I see what you mean. Now there were people who descended against this um, kind of classification, and particularly the restriction on um, immigration that was uh, built. Upon it, and I'm thinking particularly of Franz Boaz. Maybe you could talk a little bit about him. If your story has a hero, I suppose it's Boaz.
1: Uh, I think that's true. Yeah. Boaz gets his own chapter. Um, Boaz was a German immigrant uh, who left Germany in the '80s. Um, had um, had a glorious uh, career in anthropology in the United States. My first degree is in anthropology. Mm-hmm. So Boas was somebody, somebody who was familiar to me. And um, as a student at the University of California, Berkeley, I studied anthropology in Kroeber Hall. Oh, I've
0: been there many times.
1: And Kroeber, yeah. of course, was one of, yeah. I think he was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of uh, Franz Boas's dissertation uh-huh. yeah. students. So um, in, a, in a sense, uh, this is a very familiar history for me, Um, Boas is considered the father of cultural anthropology, whereas uh, Jan Friedrich Blumenbach is considered the father of physical anthropology. For Boas, it was crucial for Americans to understand that race, culture, and language were three different things. And they did not go together. That is to say, they did not necessarily go together, which was the line of the raciologists, that race and language and culture were all the same thing. So in the early 20th century, the idea of racial temperament uh, flourished. The idea that your race gave you a kind of psychology, that was very acceptable. Mm -hmm. This was not what Franz Boss and his students did. So Boas began disputing the idea of um, sort of physical determination really quite early um, uh, in the teens around 1920. And um, he still believed in race, even at his death in 1942. And he died in the Columbia University Faculty Club.
0: This really... supposedly
1: in (laughs) mid-sentence revising his idea about how many races there were.
0: Yeah, right. Uh,
1: So, um, Bolas' idea about culture and the importance of culture and the distinction between culture and race, that became the reigning idea um, by the 40s and Mm -hmm. the 50s and the 60s. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, he had a number of very I guess I would call them famous um, students, people, yeah. people who are – maybe you could mention them.
1: Well, uh, the person I concentrate on is Ruth Benedict. Ruth
0: Benedict, yeah.
1: Yeah, but um, others uh, were very important in making that distinction, yeah. even using craniometry against the craniometrist yeah. to show – on the IQ test against the IQ testers yeah. who wanted to show that there was a racial side –
0: IQ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to mention actually, while we're on IQ testing and things, that uh, crani craniometry wasn't yeah. the only way in which uh, the racial scientists attempted to discern. Yeah,
1: craniometry sort of- was bigger in the 19th century, and IQ testing after the First World War.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and then the discovery of these degenerate, what they th- call degenerate families, and some mm-hmm. sort of heritable characteristics. Uh, yeah. among, among groups of people that led them to crime and things like this. And this, this led to another very interesting connection. We've talked a little bit about the legislation and how it was based to some extent on racial science. But there was also eugenics, which is a fascinating and I'm, uh, I fear a kind of forgotten moment in American history because it relates to some of our heroes. You know, you mentioned Margaret Sanger. Yeah. As, yeah, So maybe you could talk a little bit about eugenics.
1: Eugenics um, was about... Uh, in shorthand, breeding better babies, yeah,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, improving the stock. That's the word that the eugenicists used all the time. So eugenicists saw people um, in the same way that they saw livestock, really, that breeding was, was everything. Mm-hmm. And some of them uh, were really kind of pernicious figures. Um, but the point with eugenics was uh, as it emerged in the 20s especially, was not so much against people of color, not against black yeah, people yeah. but against poor white people yeah, yeah,
2: that's and the, these that's are really the
1: degenerate families yeah. that you're talking about and degenerate families, <clears throat> excuse me, was a way of talking about people with impeccable Anglo-Saxon lineage who were physically not up to it, um, so they were degenerate families. That is to say, that they were hereditarily inferior. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hereditary,
2: yeah.
1: and they they needed to be sterilized. Yeah, and they, so they were sterilized.
0: They, Some of them were. They sterile. were sterilized. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the really amazing thing yeah. about it is that. Yeah, I remember actually re- reading um, Nazi propaganda from the 1930s that uh, they wanted to point out that the, uh, the National Socialists weren't the only people who had sterilization campaigns, that the Americans had them too. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. absolutely.
0: <laughs> this was by way of excusing sterilization and, and these other sorts of eugenic measures. So. Well,
1: sterilization was the way to stop um, the breeding of these degenerate families. And that was part of the panic after the First World War, mm-hmm. that we need not only to have the best kind of white people, but we need to stop the breeding of those who were dragging down
0: mm-hmm. white people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So um, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about the one of the ways that you structure the narrative and I think would be useful for the listeners to know about is various enlargements of Whiteness, that is, who is included and who is not. Could you take us yeah. through just very briefly the, f- I think you talk about four enlargements?
1: Yeah, it, it's, um, it's enlargements of American whiteness in the yeah. sense of the enlargement of this, the idea of who is an American. Yeah. So the first enlargement comes really uh, quite early in the early 19th century during what we call the Jacksonian era. And this is where the um, restrictions of voting get lifted, many of the restrictions. The biggest restriction didn't get lifted, and that was against uh, women, adult women. But um, the earlier restrictions uh, applied to what you owned, your stake in society, your um, your economic stake in society. So that you had to have a certain amount of income or a certain amount of real estate or a certain amount of wealth in order to vote. Those restrictions got dropped in the Jacksonian era of the common man, really the era of the common white man. So that's the first enlargement, which is an enlargement um, of the polity uh, from people with a certain amount of wealth to white men. So race gets included in the first enlargement. Mm -hmm. Before the first enlargement, in various um, northern states like uh, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, um, black men with a certain amount of property, I'm sorry, not Rhode Island, New York, black men with a certain amount of property could vote. But with the enlargement, those um, property black men lost the vote in favor of unpropertied white men. So that's the first great enlargement. Mm-hmm. The second enlargement comes uh, at the turn of the 20th century, when the Irish go from being um, an inferior race, the Celtic race, uh, to being enfolded into a new term, a 20th century term, which is Nordic. Mm-hmm. So the 19th century term was Saxon, or Anglo-Saxon, so that the Celts are out. By the tw- early 20th century, the new term is Nordic, popularized by Madison Grant, a famous eugenicist. Mm-hmm. The new term, Nordic, is for northern Western Europeans, and the Irish are in. So uh, that second grade enlargement lets the Irish in. Mm-hmm. The third grade enlargement is, occurs uh, starts... With the mobilization, the political mobilization of the New Deal in the 1930s uh, picks up steam during the mobilization of the Second World War and really crests with the um, FHA and the federal mortgage lending uh, policies that created the suburbs, which become white territory. And the cities, the inner cities, as we say, which became black territory. So that's the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And remember Mm -hmm. that fair housing legislation that says that discrimination in housing is illegal, that does not date until 1968. So my own family uh, in Oakland, California, was never able to get an FHA loan. Mm -hmm. Um, not because we were not upstanding good people, and my father didn't have a steady job. My father had a steady job, but because we were house hunting while black. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry, I've never heard that one before. That's good. That's not funny, Marshall. I know it's not, but it's. Yeah. Like, I never heard that one before. I've heard driving all black, but not house hunting while yeah. black. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, by the, I should also, uh, I should also say, by the way, we have Colin Gordon here in the department, and he studies exactly this: these racial yeah. covenants in the 1950s and 60s, yeah. and studies. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. So um, it was perfectly legal to deny people um, mortgages backed by the federal government. Let me tell you why that was important. Uh, You understand the discrimination part, but why is an FHA loan important? Um, Federally backed loans were important because, first of all, you only needed a small down payment, not half or a third or whatever, 10%, 20%. So small down payment. Uh, second, uh, low interest rates. Third, fixed interest rates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our recent uh, history, will tell us why that's important. Mm-hmm. And long term, so that usually it was a 30-year mortgage. And so you paid it off in equal increments instead of having a gigantic balloon payment at some point. When you just would have to come up with thousands and thousands of dollars, these were really important economic steps, and for the most part, they were available. Not for the most part, 98 percent went to white people. Mm-hmm. The most part is largely to the new suburbs. The best known is the Levitt towns: Levittown in Long Island, Levittown, Levitt towns (plural) in Long Island, and Levittown in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting in the 50s, they are still largely white territory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the fourth enlargement um, is not so much of whiteness, because whiteness is be- becoming less salient. Uh, and we're living in that at the present time. And that's when, well, first of all, two things were going on starting in the 60s. One is desegregation, which meant that, that um, opportunity was more open to people of African descent. So African Americans could begin to break out or come from behind the veil and uh, start to get rich, mm-hmm. start to go to Ivy League schools. That's one part. The second part, which is probably more important, is the revision of immigration laws and the opening of immigration to people from the western Mm hemisphere. And that means largely Latinos. And as we know from the U.S. Census, uh, Latinos or Hispanics can be of any race.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, um, vast numbers of people who consider themselves of Latino heritage will not check a race on mm-hmm. um, the census, or do not think of themselves as belonging to a race. Um, and if they check something, they check um, not of any race or mm-hmm. some other race. So the racial categories break down in the sense of how people think of themselves. We have large numbers of immigrants who simply do not think of themselves in traditional black white terms. And those traditional black white terms mean less.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that the, I think they do. One thing I was going to mention, just personally, is that, and this bears on your point about, I guess, the fading or the changing of what whiteness means. I know that when I am given the opportunity, as we often say, to check the box mm-hmm. and it says white or Caucasian or something, I feel very uncomfortable about it.
1: Yeah, this is a problem that some white people
0: have. I, I really do. I mean, I check it because I know I probably should, but I feel very. Well, you know, nobody's standing
1: over you. Nobody's saying, you You can check black if you want. We need
0: more black people. It's funny because my friend, uh, I have a friend, Adam Weissman, who's a really very funny guy. And uh, he would, uh, this was actually at Harvard, and he would walk around saying that he was African-American. And I I said, Adam, how can you be African-American? he said, well, you know, according to the census, uh, this is your your right to declare any race you like. And I am African-American. And I said, great, Adam, that's terrific.
1: <laughs> but the big thing is that he needs to say that all that uh, time. Yeah, I don't think he does. No. I, don't, I, don't think Adam, well, I don't think Adam. Yeah, that. yeah.
0: So anyway, but yeah, yeah. That is a. It's a very interesting thing, um, because, and I think it's particularly true of people who uh, look like me. I don't know what to call people who look like me, but we are very uncomfortable in the American context with trying to think yeah. about ourselves in racial terms. Yeah. It's kind of you,
1: you could call yourselves white people, or you don't have to. I just said from Kansas. You know, um, <laughs> So sometimes I'm asked if I believe in uh, reparations for slavery and uh-huh. segregation, and I say yeah. And um, but part of the, the the material part of the reparations would go to institutions. Mm-hmm. But in addition, I want every person who identifies as African American to have access over his or her lifetime to a therapist. <laughs> yeah,
0: from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, <laughs> like, because living in a racist
1: society drives you crazy. Yeah, no, it really does. I, I, was, I was on radio, uh, on television here in Newark one time, and um, one of the hosts, uh, who used to be Italian-American, uh, said, well, I need a therapist. And I said, well, if you just declare yourself as an African-American... <laughs> you know we could have a list of african americans and you could declare yourself one and then you could have a therapist but the thing is that most people don't want to be african americans all the time because yeah. it's really inconvenient
0: no i think that yeah i think you're absolutely right it's a it's a lot of pre- it's a lot of pressure i think i know that you know i kind of Again, just growing up where I grew up, and, and Wichita was not a, you know, it was a segregated city, but it was a, about 15% black, and um, I played a lot of sports, so, and not to mm-hmm. kind of beat the stereotype, but there were mm-hmm. lots of other guys were my friends who were black, mm-hmm. and I just remember they were, it was kind of uncomfortable for them. And, and, oh,
1: it's it's, inc- it's exhausting, Marshall, it's absolutely exhausting, even in our enlightened times, it's
0: exhausting. Well, and I think about the person, I won't mention his name, but he was an idol of mine, and he was an, a, a black guy that I knew and one of my really good friends, and he was the... Best athlete in my, um, in my high school, and I really felt very privileged to be his friend because he was just so much better at everything than I was mm-hmm. and I you know his story is not a happy one. I read about him in the newspaper, if yeah. you know what I mean, and it he yeah. did not turn out well for him, and he yeah, was really had he been a white kid, uh, you know it would well, have been the Ivy League and need golden Boy
1: he a white kid of a certain standing. No, that's right. Let's not glorify the sort of poor white people. No, no, not at all. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, One of of the points that I'd like to make that I learned in my book, uh, and this is going to sound really obvious, but it's something I had to learn, is the importance of seeing what we have in common. Um, Because race is used to stigmatize people, largely, Um, And when it's not used to stigmatize, it's used to overcome stigmatization. So we have um, black power, which is not a stigmatizing, but an attempt to overcome Mm -hmm. stigma. So it's a way of dividing people. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
1: I now feel that we need to de-emphasize racial difference and Mm -hmm. look at what goes across the color lines. So going back to your friend... Uh, who was black and probably not well off economically, um, there were the the ills of class that he suffered and certainly the ills of race um, are those which would have afflicted uh, lots of other mm-hmm. young black men.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But also they would have afflicted poor white people. Mm-hmm. So if we are to heal our poor, divided country, um, we could start by not emphasizing, not starting with what makes us different, Mm -hmm. but looking toward what brings us together. Mm -hmm. So right now, you know, this is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a Martin Luther King Jr. speaker. It's not Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but it's Martin Luther King Jr. season. (laughs) So, child poverty, Child poverty hits black families the hardest because black families are the poorest, Uh but child poverty hits a vast uh, cohort of American children of every background. Mm -hmm. So I would like us to work on that Mm
2: -hmm.
1: rather than go around cutting ourselves up by race or by ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, no, I agree completely with that. You know, just – I I believe it's in two days. The Iowa legislature is going to meet, and they – the Republicans recently, not to name names, but uh, took control of the legislature here, and they're going to cut a, uh, a a preschool program that gives all Iowa uh, kids um, preschool um, regardless of income. And I think that's about to be axed. And I can't that's say sad. that I'm particularly it's for that. So sad. Yeah, that not, is so not, sad. Yeah, and I'm a reasonably conservative person, I'll tell you, but that one I cannot buy. No, that's no good. No, and I agree with you completely. And I think most people do. It's just it's a matter of. Uh, how you get there, and and I don't really know. I mean, I very much admire Obama and the way he talks about these things because I I think that he he is farther along the road than almost anybody I know. And actually, I do know him a little bit, oddly enough. I used, uh-huh. to, I used to play basketball with him. Wow! <laughs> so that's not, Can I touch uh, you? <laughs> no, I, you know, I mentioned this. I mentioned this at a, it's kind of kind of embarrassing because I mentioned this at every moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my only claim to fame. He's the only famous guy I've ever met. Yeah, but, uh, and he's pretty good. That's too. a big one. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, and no, I don't think he remembers me though. That's okay though. But anyway, um, I want to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history. We've taken up a lot of your time, and I thank you for it. Uh, but, um, now what are you working on now? What is your what is your current project?
1: My current project is an MFA, Masters of Fine Art in Painting at the Rhode Island School of Design, which I will get in June.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Um, and uh, after that, I have a show in 2012 at the Brooklyn Historical Society. Wow.
0: That's great.
1: Of paintings based on an archive of photographs of people in Brooklyn from the 1970s cool. and 80s. After that, I will be doing a book called The Truth About Beauty,
0: uh-huh.
1: and I will largely paint that because the truth about beauty is really pretty simple, young and
0: healthy. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, yeah, no, that, that, you're, you're kind, yeah. You're right. I think you're right on the right page there. Yeah, no, I, I don't get prettier every day. I'll, put it, I'll no, be honest, I'm not any more attractive than I was yesterday. Yeah. So yeah. Um, anyway, well, I congratulate you on all of that, and I wish you success in all of those endeavors. And let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to uh, Nell Irvin Painter about her book, The History of White People. I very much encourage you to read it. It's, it's enlightening and interesting, and one of the things I liked about it was that it does have a kind of wry touch occasionally. It is a little bit – it's a serious topic, but it's, um, it's at some points um, funny. And I think that yeah, it, uh,
1: that's, it does have some relevance.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good thing for a history book to be. I think, especially if it's about a deadly serious topic like this. So, Nell, um, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Marshall. Oh, sure. I enjoyed All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Nell Irvin Painter about her book, The History of White People. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.